You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey there, everybody. How's it going? I want to tell you about a little something called the Fear the Riff Expo. That's right, Fear the Riff number three. Coming back to Brooklyn, New York in August. Yes, I just double-checked. August 10th, 2019. So I'm going to be there. I hope you're going to be there. Sounds like it's going to be another banging event and even better than last year. So I'm really looking forward to that. I had a really, really good time at the show last year. And I hope to see you there this year. Because I will be there, barring any unforeseen crazy circumstances. So Fear the Riff, August 10th, 2019. Be there or be square or whatever. You know, you know what I mean. I'd also like to tell you about Gun Street Wiring Shop. Gun Street Wiring Shop out of Bend, Oregon. Custom harnesses for your guitar just the way you want it. Is it time to upgrade the scratchy pots? Is it time to add some crazy push-pull functionality? Is it time to just have better stuff in your guitars? Go to GunStreetWiringShop.com and they will hook you up with the finest harnesses in the business. And they will walk you through any problems that you may have on the install. You know, it seems a bit daunting at first, but really, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And if you do run into any problems, Sean will help you. So don't worry about any of that. That's GunStreetWiringShop.com. Go to it. Check it out. Love it. Know it. Own it. Whatever. Something. Go with GunStreet. You'll like it. A couple things. I'm going to try to make this quick because I've been... A little long on these intros. I don't like to be quite so long-winded, but, you know, i got got lots to tell you. So, one, obviously, I still have a cold when I was recording this, so that's why it sounds the way it does. I apologize, but, you know, on with the show. And this episode's a little more businessy, which isn't normal, but that's really what Julie does. And I know a lot of you are really interested in that kind of stuff, so I thought it would be a good... Uh, good kind of time to dive into that stuff a little bit more and see how she looks at things from kind of a higher business level perspective. So I think a lot of the industry folks that listen to this will probably be very interested in that. And before we get started, I just want to do a quick reminder about ToneMob.com Reverb. That link will take you to Reverb.com. If you go through there, you can do all your normal shopping Anything that you've been wanting to buy for Christmas, you got somebody on your list, even if it's yourself, a small percentage of that comes back and helps support support the show. Support the show and just keep it going. It doesn't raise your prices, doesn't make anything weird, and if this is the first time you've uh, heard of Reverb, which would be very surprising, but if it is the first time you've heard of it, just signing up helps. You go to ToneMob.com slash Reverb and just sign up for an account, that helps us out too. So if you could just do that for me bookmark it, save it, use it. Anytime you shop on Reverb, it helps out a lot. And I really, really appreciate everybody that's already been using it. You guys have been very receptive to it, and that is very, very nice. So thank you. But I'll just shut my mouth. Well, I'm not going to shut it totally. You'll hear me in a sec. You know how this works. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the ToneMob.com podcast, show about guitar tone and the people behind it. I'm your host, Blake Wyland, and with me today, I have Julie Robbins from Earthquaker Devices. What's happening? Oh, not too much. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. good. I'm uh, just deep in podcast mode today, so some things awesome. changed, and I'm, I'm I'm doing like three episodes a day, so we're, wow. we're doing it. that's awesome i'm kind of used to to i'm not always recording but yesterday and you can probably relate to this yesterday i was on the phone for seven and a half hours oh my god between all the phone calls so i'm used to talking a lot it's just uh, wow happens so yeah if i talk that much i lose my voice i try and conserve it (laughs) i i i'm doing okay i thought it might be a little scratchier than it is but i'm just kind of getting over that cold I was telling you about. So it's a little bit weird. Well, I'm glad you're on the mend. Doing it, doing okay. But uh, I think we should just start off like, I know that a lot of industry people know that you have a super heavy hand in Earthquaker, but I don't know 
if as many of the consumers know your story. So it'd be good to probably start off with like, what is your backstory and how did you become a part of EQD and, and what your kind of day to day looks like? Wow. Um, okay. So let's see. I met Jamie when we were really young. I was 20. He was 22. And, um, he was a touring guitar player. He had a record label. I was a single mother college student. And um, our first sort of endeavor together was he had a record label and bands, and I started booking tours for his bands. We both have always been pretty entrepreneurial. So uh, in the early 2000s, I had a booking agency called Musical Adventures. And uh, I booked a bunch of tours for bands. And, you know, I've never been a musician, but I've always had a lot of friends that were musicians. And that was pretty much my life for a few years, booking tours. And I booked a couple clubs. And then at some point it became, we had to get some sort of stable income. So I went to work for a bank. And um, during that time, Jamie, you know, did all sorts of things, including graphic design, tour managing. We were selling like random crap on eBay to just kind of pay the bills. And when he started doing Earthquaker, it was sort of a thing where I'd come home from the bank and he'd be like, can you help me assemble all these pedals? And, you know, I'd spend my evenings assembling pedals. And then it sort of gradually grew to the point that in 2012, I felt like we could go all in on Earthquaker. And um, one of the big sort of deciding factors for us was um, health insurance. I was really concerned about getting health insurance. And um, it turned out not to be as difficult as I thought it would be. And uh, it turned out to be actually less expensive than what I was paying at the bank. Oh, wow. For our family plan. And so I left my job at the bank after about nine years and came on to Earthquaker full time. So, yeah. And my my education is in economics and political science. So I don't, you know, nobody here has like a business degree, but um, I'm pretty, pretty democratic in my kind of leadership style. I don't pretend that I know everything, but I think I have a lot of smart and good intentioned people around me. So I take a lot of feedback from my, my team. Do Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's really interesting because like for somebody who's like, I mean, you definitely surrounded yourself with music and musicians, but I was actually it didn't even cross my mind the fact that you weren't one yourself. I just kind of assumed you were because you're heavily involved in all this stuff. So I just kind of thought, oh, yeah, yeah, plays something. Yeah. Um, well, somebody has to think about something else once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I feel really you know, fine about it. Every once in a while, I have a dream that I can like play guitar. Like I've had dreams that we've been at a store and there was nobody around to like show them a pedal. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. And then I just start playing guitar really well. Jamie makes it look easy, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I understand. <laughs> is that like sort of, is that almost like a, you know, a nightmare situation where it's like, oh no, I'm put on the spot where, uh, and it's like, you just overcome somehow yeah something like that that. (laughs) something like that that's very interesting yeah so from what jamie was telling me it sounds like your day-to-day is a lot different than his day-to-day what what is your typical day look like over there um well so i am usually in my office or in a meeting um I have all kinds of things on my plate. I'm usually juggling like 20 things. There's usually people in and out of my office bringing me, you know, questions or problems of varying degrees of intensity. Um, So, yeah, I'm sort of, you know, managing everything. I'm, you know, really involved in all things cash flow related. Um, I guess I would say sort of trying to steer the ship and help everybody understand their priorities and how to get from where we are to where we're trying to get to that sort of thing. So, you know, not having a business background per se, 
was it surprising you to find that you had strengths in kind of organizing these systems and, and doing these things? Or, or are you kind of, that's just your natural inclination? I think in a lot of ways, it is my natural inclination. I don't think that I ever like had any designs on managing a lot of people. Um, I think that I would be content to just sort of like, you know, handle my own stuff. But um, I saw that somebody needed to do that. And so I sort of stepped up. I think that I'm good at kind of creating teams and seeing where our attention should be and finding the right people. Um, I think those would be my strengths, you know. Um, And I'm also, you know, pretty analytical and always kind of been very budget-minded. So, yeah, it it, it is a surprise to me. I don't think I would have ever dreamed that I would be in this position one day. (laughs) Although it's not surprising, like, seeing Jamie and his trajectory, it it seems like it, it should have gone this way. Yeah, it does seem that 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 his position there is a very good for, fit for him as a person. I think. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. He definitely could not work for someone else. You know, he needs to be in charge of his his own thing and in control of his own destiny, for sure. Was there? Um, I'm not sure what the right way to phrase this is. Was there anything that that surprised you? Like, kind of really getting into the pedal industry in, in like a serious way. Is there anything that surprised you by that? You know, cause you're, you, cause you're not, oh my, you're not a guitar so player. So it's like that people are this passionate about it or what? You oh know? yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lot of things that surprise me about the industry. I mean, it's, it's first of all, like the intensity of, you know, pedal, the pedal community, pedal fans is like the level of nerdiary is so high. <laughs> um, you know, they're talking about scooping mids like it's curing cancer or something. But, you know, when you're sort of um, a step or two removed from all of the nuances and subtleties of the tone, um, and you're sort of looking at it objectively, you're like, wow. Um, you know, first of all, it's like a luxury item, you know, it's not anything that you need. So it's sort of shocking that it's such a big industry, you know, and there's things that will do a thing, you know, you can get a reverb for what, like $40, you can get a reverb for like $500, you know, so it's almost like in some ways, pure capitalism doesn't apply, like there's something, (laughs) some extra factor there um, that could be maybe an addiction or something like that. That uh, is, uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, I, you may have it. <laughs> I, well, I have, I don't know how many pedals I have, but it, it's, um, it's last time I counted, it was around 160 and that was a while ago. So I don't know if that constitutes an addiction or an obsession, or what, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's definitely, and it's, it's definitely fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really cool, but it like in a lot of ways just sort of defies logic. You know what I mean? So those things all struck me as very interesting. Um, I kind of I can't think of any other industries that work the same way that ours does. You know, there's a lot of camaraderie among you know people that are technically in competition with each other. Um, it also seems like the type of people that own pedal companies are not, you know, cutthroat businessmen that it's all about the bottom line. And, you know, we're not like that. So it seems like that's a pretty common thing across, across the industry. Yeah, just off the top of my head, that's a couple things that really surprised me. (laughs) I think, I think that this industry attracts a certain type of person for the most part. You know, Mm -hmm. there's outliers everywhere, of course. But like, for the most part, you're right. Like, Nobody really got into this, in my opinion, like very few people got into this going like, I'm going to make piles of cash. Right, like, right, right. It's like, and if you did, you kind of, you know, well, there's a rude awakening for you about to happen. Um, it's it's more like this stuff is just so fun for most of us. It's so, I know for me, it was like, I like ramrodded my way into it, sort of. I was like, I don't know how to build <laughs> anything. I don't know 
you know, I don't I just know I love this stuff and I want to work in this business. And so I started this show and you know, here we are. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it does attract, I think, a certain type of individual. And those individuals tend to be pretty chill for the most part. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pretty chill. Pretty like a certain level of genius, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Also, you know, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of people that just probably wouldn't be cut out for, you know, working, working for somebody else, basically need to have control over their own destiny. For sure. For sure. Was, was when you are looking at an effect, right? So the, mm-hmm. since you are kind of removed from it, like this is like a thing that you guys make is it is it is it hard to wrap your mind around like the kind of the passionate following that you guys have like people love earthquaker they love oh yeah yeah it's really cool well i don't know if it's hard for me to wrap my mind around it it's just um i think it is somewhat surprising you know especially because well like in the analytical world of like data reporting for the music industry um effects are like classified as like an accessory but we more think of them like they're instruments of their own you know and it seems like that's why a lot of people are drawn to our pedals so i mean even though i don't play i do (laughs) i have learned so much like it's ridiculous well i used to do all of like the customer support and that involved me actually sitting basically where I am now in our studio and Jamie's sitting about four feet from me and me being like, Jamie, what do we have that will give you that Steve Vai tone and him telling me <laughs> and then sort of committing those, those facts to memory. And then also, you know, paying attention, but I have to say, you know, I just don't pay attention to other people's pedals so I really only know about ours or things that are hotly debated in our office or things like that. Um, I sort of feel like that's a uh, wonderful um, break that I have that I'm not, I'm not concerned with all that. You know what I mean? And I think that if I had all that stuff in my brain, it would be harder to get all my other stuff done. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably good. It's probably good for you just to focus on you and what you got to do and let <laughs> probably the, the sort out everything <laughs> product related basically yes yeah i mean i will um you know be asking questions like why would anyone want this um to <laughs> sort of uncover you know what angle should we take with this or th- those sorts of things help me understand how we're going to approach our product launch or marketing or things like that um yeah. So I know I know Jamie told me the other day that you basically you are the reason that like the the Palisades exists because you were like, oh, yeah, too many <laughs> people are asking for a tube screamer. You're going to make a tube screamer. OK. And it's like, well, <laughs> I don't think I told him like that. I, I, I probably don't. Don't. I probably don't like that. Okay. Yeah. But I was like, why? Like, because I actually thought it was like tube tubes creamer okay right right. not tubes screamer right um so like people would literally walk up to our nam booth and be like which one's a tube screamer and i'd be like uh none of them and they would just walk away and i'd be like what why why (laughs) what is that right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and um so that was funny because he was like you know i've never really gotten into them but maybe I should check out what all the fuss is about. So he started asking guys around the shop, like, do you have any tube screamers that I can check out? And um, one of our longtime employees, uh, Joe Golden, was like, oh, yeah, I come from a tube screamer family. I got tube screamers. My mom's got tube screamers. My dad's got tube screamers. <laughs> and like brought all these tube screamers in. And then Jamie went down so far down this rabbit hole. Um and uh, I'd hear him like noodling around in the basement for hours and hours, um, just kind of <laughs> really enveloping himself in all of the tube screamer tones. <laughs> and then, um, you know, a lot of times through development, he's telling me 
uh, kind of almost at nausea, like blah, 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 blah. This problem I got here, I want to make it like this. And I'm just sort of like, uh huh. Okay, sure. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> and then eventually it was finished and I was really blown away with it. I think it's one of our most attractive petals. And I just felt really, felt really good about it. I still do. That's a good petal. Well, that was one of the first um, tube screamers that I was like, oh, that's different. Like, finally. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, you can tune the circuit in so many ways that there's lots of different ones out there. But that was the one that probably piqued my interest more than any other tube screamer that had came out at the time. I was like, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's a good take on it. Of course. That's what Earthquaker did with it. Why would, Thank you. Why would they not have done that? <laughs> well, it was also really funny because Jamie had for years been like, we're not making any tube screamers. And so he like felt this crazy obligation <laughs> to like be like, I know I said I wouldn't do this, you know, uh, but nobody cared. No. And that nobody was, that was, was like, you said you wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Do you have a, a product? I think I asked the same thing of, of Jamie or a similar, maybe phrased a little differently. Do you have any products that you're just, you're kind of surprised that people like? Hmm. Well, I've heard people do really good and really uh, awful things with all of our products. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some that I like more than others. Um Let's see. What am I surprised that people like? Or like, I'm kind of thinking of it like, so like my wife's not into any of this either. Like, Mm -hmm. um, and she, so I'm like, oh yeah, this pedal totally destroys your signal. And she's like, why would you want that? Like, you know, I'm like, it's awesome. You know, like sometimes uh, coming at it from the outside, it's hard to understand why, why would somebody want to mangle their signal into yeah. Madden. Well, okay. I can think of some things that, okay. So we have a couple one knob pedals like the Alcapulco gold or the eruptor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people will be like, there's only one knob. How do I control, you know, the, the volume or whatever. And I'm like, feel free to use any of the other volume knobs that you have at your discretion. <laughs> that is kind of funny. Yeah. There's one there. There's one there. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, I I do like our our more far out um pedals like the Data Corruptor or the Arpanoid or the Rainbow Machine. Like I have heard those used in really interesting ways, and um, those are definitely some that we'd get feedback from dealers. Like you know, I'm not sure if anybody is going to want this and. And that's kind of how we feel too when we're putting out a product. We don't know what the market's going to do with it, especially if it's something that kind of didn't exist in pedal format before. So you just kind of put it out there and hope for the best. And um, yeah, a lot of a lot of dealers were surprised by how well a lot of those pedals performed. Do you do you take any feedback from the dealers and go back to the guys at the shop and be like? listen, the dealers are telling me that we need, well, you know, for instance, maybe a tube screamer. Or the dealers are telling me we need this, so let's make one. Does that ever happen? Um, no, but we do. Okay, so Jamie is so, you know, in charge of the product design, and it really is what he works on what he's inspired to work on. And I think that if somebody wanted us to never make a product the best way would be to ask him to make it (laughs) (laughs) okay all right um but we do in general consider very much what our dealers think about anything we're doing or what our end consumers will think or what other options they have to make sure we're giving them a good product at a good price you know hopefully an exceptional product at a very good price right right but um Yeah. And dealers aren't so much like, you know, at least to my experience, telling us what people are asking for, but they don't have, you know, it's so many times that uh, I'll be like, Jamie, so-and-so is looking for something that does this. And he was like, well, tell me what pedal that is. And I'll tell them and they'll be like, oh, I didn't know. So then they go get that pedal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. You guys make so many things. Do you ever think that like maybe 
and, and this is just outside looking in, like most most pedal companies don't have the range of SKUs that you guys do. Do you mm -hmm. ever think that it's like you might need to like tone that down a little bit or get rid of some stuff or, you know, what? you guys have a lot of product. Yeah. Well, we do cut some pedals every year. We try and keep it around the same size overall of like the current lineup. Um, but, you know, we don't have any sort of set targets. Do you know what I mean? Like this is the maximum number of pedals we have. Um, although like it does get really annoying when we're trying to make boards with all of our pedals. If we have more than we'll fit onto <laughs> large pedal boards. So um, yeah, I mean, I think that products kind of have a life cycle and to some extent we, the hard stuff happens at the beginning, you know what I mean? It, towards later, you can just make them as long as people want them and our sort of the way that we do things, we are making everything to demand. Um, and then of course, as soon as you discontinue something, that's when people really want it. Of course. But, um, yeah, I'm not super concerned about how big or small or our line sizes and um i think that jamie i really trust jamie when it comes to product development and things like that um yeah he's he's never let me down so <laughs> this is true this is true. yeah he, yeah he's got good vision i think in that department. yeah incredible taste and very good vision yeah yes so do you have any like thing that you've learned going, you know, you've started from zero basically and got to, you know, to be one of the more reputable companies in the industry. Do you have any lessons learned along the way or things that happened that uh, maybe other newer companies or smaller companies can look out for or any, any advice for, for anyone, you know, who's starting out? Hmm. Yeah, let's see. Well, I think it's a really important to have sort of company principles and values that help you guide your decision making. Um, if you have all the values that are most important to you and make sure that you're respecting those with all of your decisions, then you can be confident that you're always, you know, on the right on the right path. Um, when you're sort of at a crossroads and trying to decide where to go, being able to fall back on things like that is really important. I also think it's really important for small business owners not to think that they can or have to do everything. Um, and that they should, you know, be comfortable delegating things to other people and, uh, you know, bringing other people into the mix um, to take on different tasks. I think that's a classic small business owner move is trying to do everything themselves. And that's a great way to, you know, stress yourself into an early heart attack. <laughs> yes, for sure. So, you know, um, I've always been happy to bring more people on and sort of peel off parts of my role to establish a career for them. So that's one of the things that's kind of crazy is, you know, there's like eight people doing what, you know, one or two people did for a long time. Um, let's see, what other advice would I have for people in the industry? Um, I think it's just really important to think about sort of the ecosystem that we live in, you know? Okay. We're in the music industry our customers are musicians their music stores um, music stores and musicians both have been on under you know a lot of changing circumstances and it's just very important to be fair and to make sure that that industry can continue to survive and it's by manufacturers having fair policies and um making sure that they're not doing things that are um, detrimental to dealers. And so that that's a lot of our philosophy. What do you, when you say detrimental to dealers, what, what kind of practices do you mean by that? Well, so maybe trying to think of when we started our, our map policy. It's, pro it's probably been a good four years. 
So map policies, minimum advertised pricing. Right. Um, if you don't have a map policy or you don't enforce a map policy, then dealers are sort of in a price war with each other all the time. And they may be inclined to discount to the point that they're making like no money. And um, just to get sort of sale, by just to keep the cash flow coming type of thing. Yeah. Um, but if you have a policy and you enforce it, then it helps them protect their investment in your brand. And they know how much money they'll be able to make um, without being concerned that they'll be constantly you know, asked to match prices from somebody undercutting them or things like that. Um, and I think that that's been a critical factor to helping our company grow and um, dealers feel good about carrying our brand. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's, I think that's really important. I think if anybody starts bringing on dealers, that is a uh, very very good point that you made because that is not something I even thought about early on talking to some of these guys mm -hmm. until later, you know, they'd go and like, yeah. oh, this dealer's undercutting. Like, well, he shouldn't do that. Like, well, do you have a policy about that? Well, no. Yeah. You know, that's a really good kind of, and sometimes not thought about practice, I believe. So that was really good. Um, yeah, I think it's just really, you know, you've got to put yourself in the position of, um, of a dealer you know, and, and brick and mortar dealers have always been our sort of life lifeline. We actually don't sell direct. We haven't sold direct in about four years. And um, I would say that's a great decision. Um, it helps push all of your business to your dealers and, um, you know, they don't feel like they're in competition with you. And then um, you're able to provide a higher level of customer service and and things like that. Um, yeah, that's another thing we sort of learned along the way. That was something I wanted to ask you about because um, it seems mm -hmm. that like I, I knew you guys didn't sell direct. I, I didn't really think about it until recently, but I somebody brought it up. I'm like, oh, they don't, do they? And mm -hmm. and so my question is is this and I've, I've talked to a lot of companies about this and I really view um, the way that not just this industry, but just commerce in general is going more and more e-com every year, whether it's mm -hmm. Amazon or direct on the website or whatever the case may mm -hmm. be. Do you view that being an, like a necessary change at some point, like in, you know, 10 years or who knows when, what the timeline is that that direct might be, what people expect? Um, I don't think that is what people will expect. Um, I mean, first of all, we're like located in Akron, Ohio, which is not like the center of the universe. So like if we were in a place where there was like more people, maybe it would be a bigger deal. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that people should, support you know other businesses whether they're their local store that they can walk over to or their preferred online shop that has the best customer service policy or um you know whatever their preference is but you know we've we've really never gotten complaints that we don't sell direct you know sometimes people will be confused like they'll be think oh it's not available and then we just put a button on our website that said find a dealer right. <laughs> and then that sort of solved that. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that when we looked at it, it was a very small percentage of our sales, but it was a much greater percentage of our energy. And um, that when we made the decision, it was due to constantly being backordered and not being able to, you know, adequately keep all of the inventory on the website updated. We wouldn't want a dealer to be waiting and somebody to be able to order it on the website and get it that day. So that was kind of our logic behind it. And, um, you know, we've since like re eliminated our backlog and work from like a surplus, but we still would rather all the sales go through dealers. Um, 
like I said, it's it's really to support that ecosystem. Right, right. Um, yes. So the music store is important, and I've I I you know I you see some publications that say like, um, I I have many theories on this, and I'd be curious to see if they align with yours. That the you know guitar is dying, and people aren't playing guitar anymore, and they're citing, uh, you know giant guitar brands last you know sales are, are slowing and guitar center sales are slowing and i'm going I, to me that's a bit short-sighted because i know that there's lots and lots of small brands eating into those big those big corporations basically mm-hmm. so like just because like fender and gibson are showing slowing sales and guitar centers showing slowing sales that doesn't account for you know our local music shop which is booming they're not reporting their numbers to anybody you know and right and you know some of the smaller pedal companies like medium-sized pedal companies that are doing really well they're not reporting their numbers to any of these publications and mm-hmm. same with the guitar builders so i feel like that's a lazy argument to say that the guitar is dying um i feel like that's ignoring a yeah. big a big slice of the picture basically well, it is like uh it is difficult to predict the future of like will Qatar sales continue to grow? You know, there's also so much used product out there. There's a lot of debate over, you know, the quality of new mass market guitars. Is that what is appealing to people? But I think from what I'm seeing, I mean, music is changing. Um, electronic music is a lot more prevalent. Our daughters are teenagers and they're fans of these like YouTube stars that have these like ridiculous songs about sweatshirts and stuff, (laughs) you know, but it's kind of every generation is thinks about their kids music. Like that's not music, but you know, in other, in other areas like in Japan where there is a much stronger component of music education in every child's life. You know, I feel more optimistic about their future musicians than I do in the U S where music programs are getting cut left and right. You know, it's hard to say where, where the industry is going and um, if, if it is a long-term trend, I also think, you know, there's probably a recession on the horizon. If not, already coming right now because it's been 10 years since we had a recession and they, you just inevitably will have one. Yeah. (laughs) So reluctantly, I I, I agree with you. I don't want to agree Mm -hmm. with you, but I do. I think that that is. Yeah. Unfortunately. Well, if people feel insecure, they're not as likely to spend money on things that are, you know, an accessory or an instrument. Or things that are not, um, you know, food and shelter and healthcare and the most critical things. So, is there anything yeah. that that since we both kind of share that viewpoint, is there anything that you think you can do as a company to try to prepare for that, or is it just you kind of got to roll with it when it gets here? I think, <clears throat> like on our side, we're always trying to look at, well, what could derail us right now, you know? And there are, you know, some pretty massive things that could affect anybody who's, you know, importing parts from China. Oh, yeah. Um, And, you know, fortunately, there's a 90-day extension on whatever proposed tariffs are. But that's a, that's sort of a big, a big thing that we'd need to consider. So, I've sort of, for years, all we needed to think of was how how do we increase our our capacity to meet demand, and now I think more. Okay, what if things go the other way? What changes would I make to preserve our organization? And I feel ultimately like we're very well prepared because our production methods are very adaptable um, to demand. Okay. And so it's just understanding if it's a short-term or long-term change in demand and implementing changes based on that. But as opposed to brands that are mass manufactured and they may need to order a certain quantity of pedals and then they have all this stuff on the shelves, we can be very adaptable to, you know, what, what demand is asking us for. And uh, that's a good, 
position to be in. Yes, it is. I, and I know exactly what you're talking about. It's if you got to order, you know, five, six thousand pre-populated things and, mm-hmm. and have it all sitting there. And then it's like, well, and hopefully that one isn't a stinker of a, of a seller or hopefully the you know economy stays OK. And it's, you're not just left with a bunch of essentially useless parts that you can't get. Rid of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really cool position to be in from that perspective. Yeah. <laughs> was that intentional or did that kind of happen just because that's how you started processing things? Well, part of it was Jamie's philosophy and it was also, you know, we're not a super sophisticated manufacturer, you know, like we don't have all of those sophisticated machines to do manufacturing for us. I know that a huge part of our identity is making the pedals ourselves here at Akron. And I don't know how much a consumer cares about any of that, but it's something that we care about a lot. So I think it was, it was sort of an organic way that we developed that turned out to be an advantage. Um, and I, I just don't know anybody else that does it the way that we do it. Um, so we're not, we're not able to like look at somebody and be like, oh, we'll just do it like that. We have to figure everything out on our own. Right, right. That seems like it, it's been that way since the beginning. You sort of figured everything you do out. There was no one to look to. There wasn't a, yeah. there wasn't a you to look to uh, at the time. No, no. <laughs> That's very, very yeah. interesting. Um, I had a pretty good question uh, in amongst the jokes on the, the Facebook group. Uh-huh. People just like to post nonsense gifts co. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but another Blake, Blake Lawson asked, uh, how hard is it to balance creativity with sales? Which I thought was actually pretty interesting. Um, hmm. Well, like I said, I don't think that we've ever been able to look at something and know how the market is going to receive it. We always hope for the best. Um, I do think that Jamie having like total control over what he's working on, um, is the best thing for creativity. You know, there's no one to say you can't do that. You know, he is able to take it as far as he wants. So for us, I think that we're maybe different than other companies. And I don't mean other pedal companies. I mean, like other for-profit companies that, you know, if we were looking at what our biggest concern was, it wouldn't be profit. It would be doing the best job we can. So that means making the best pedals that we can. So it sort of flips, you know, the equation a little bit when you look at it that way. But um, yeah, yeah, I do understand <laughs> that. And one time I heard I heard it was uh, it was Josh Scott. He he I can't remember if he was doing an interview or if I heard him tell somebody this at NAM. And and I thought it was a really interesting perspective. It was talking to a, a who was he talking to? I can't remember. Anyway, he was giving some advice for a newer pedal company. And it's like, what was the biggest piece of advice that he could give was to just stick around. He's like, it's going to be hard just to to stick around at some point. And he's like, and if you mm-hmm. can, you're going to, you know, you're going to be in a better position. You know, just just really think about, like, how can you stay around? Do you do you think that that's accurate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's kind of a weirdly phrased question. but I think you know what? I yeah, mean. yeah, I, I definitely think that. Well, I listened to a couple of your podcasts after hearing that I was going to be a guest on one. (laughs) And one thing that kind of struck me that I didn't hear from other people, I was like, why do they make it sound like it's so easy? Because it's not easy. It's really hard. Like you're dealing with all sorts of problems all the time. That's what owning a business is, is just solving all these different problems. Right. So I think so long as you're still engaged in the act of solving all those problems, you've got a really good chance of figuring it out and working past it. And it is interesting to look back and think about how at various stages, what our biggest problem was and how we were able to resolve it. But you're never going to be in a situation where everything is just sunshine and roses. There's always going to be something. Yes, there's always Um, an issue somewhere. 
Like, yes, exactly. Nothing's ever perfect. That's a yeah. thing. So when you, when you look back at some of those struggles at different times, what, what were some like ones that stick out in your mind and how did you get around them? Um, well, let's see. So I'm recording this in our old shop, um, where we were literally crammed in here, um, like sardines, like one toilet for 30 people. Oh, whoa. And, um, we were doing great, but our biggest problem was our enclosures were, um, it was difficult to get them on time and to the quality that we wanted them. And so we embarked on bringing all of that in house and got CNC machines and printers and drill presses and um, worked to design our own enclosure mold and find good suppliers for that and local powder coaters and had to work through all of the learning curve of all of that. But now we never have a problem with enclosures and there's three people who full time are working to make sure all of our enclosures are perfect. But it did involve, you know, moving into another building and, um, you know, financing equipment and, and doing things like that that were pretty far outside of our comfort zone at that time. But then, you know, it helped us understand, okay, we can, we can do this. We can um, take on new things. And it's been, really been great. I think having as much as you can in-house is the best possible thing. Yeah, especially from a from a quality controls perspective, I know that mm-hmm. you're you're not alone in that struggle with the uh, with the enclosures, and that others have come to a similar solution. Like, yeah, well, if you want something done right, I guess you got to do it yourself, type of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that is kind of scary because, like you said, that is a completely different process than soldering together PCBs. It's way. Oh better. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Was there anything uh, involved in that that you were like, I can't believe this is as complicated as it is. It's just drilling holes in boxes or was was it just you had somebody helping you along the way or how did you figure all that out? Um, Jamie was really more involved in that than I was. I was sort of like, can you just tell me how much money we need? (laughs) (laughs) But I know that, um, you know, we sent one of our guys to CNC school. Um, so he went in the evenings for like three months and got certified to operate a CNC machine. Um, but that was, of course, after we were already using it. Right. Um, yeah, I know that there was a big learning curve with that. Kind of one of the most um, surprising things was that it was difficult to find local powder coaters that were like willing to work with us um, because... You know, Akron was um, known as the rubber capital of the world due to our proximity to Detroit. We made all these tires and there was a lot of industry that was revolving around providing to, you know, parts for the automotive industry. And then that all died a long time ago. There's, you know, companies that have survived, but they're not that interested in doing a lot of little things. They might want to do a few big things or, you know, it was, we were just seemed to be a weird size of what our demand was and and what price we needed. But we were eventually able to find some that (laughs) would work with us. But that I didn't think was going to be so hard. You know, there's like 20 powder coating facilities in the yellow pages. And we actually had to kind of expand our net to go. I, I think the closest is like a 45 minute drive. Oh, wow. That is really surprising. I, I, yeah, because I've always thought I'm like, we got a, a lot of powder coaters over here in my neck of the woods. And I thought that wouldn't be that hard to sort out. But I guess, you know, if they're not set up to do those things, they're set up to do an yeah. automotive frame or something. Right. It's a different, totally different process. That's very. I Yeah. That. And we have a lot of different colors. Like we quickly realized we would be too much for any single powder coater. So we have a few. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but that was that was like the biggest delay that we hit. Kind of kind of going on a different route here. What is one of the coolest things that happened to you as a result of of working at EQD? 
definitely the travel that we get to do. Um, so Jamie and I have got to do a lot of trips where we're exploring different markets or evaluating different distributors. And so we end up finding ourselves in all these far flung places. And I love to travel. I love to experience other cultures. So that by far is my favorite. Um, we've also got to be some really incredible people. Um, I don't know if you follow any of our YouTube videos, but we do this series called show us your junk where we go around to different studios. And I'm always just so like in awe of the engineers and producers, um, of these studios. They're like magic to me. (laughs) Right. And so that's been another really amazing experience. That's pretty cool. Is there any, any particular one stand out in your mind experience or place? Oh, wow. Um, Mark Mothersbaugh's studio, uh, being that Devo's from Akron and everyone always um, idolized Devo. And it's a really amazing studio, too. And it's in this round building um, that used to be a plastic surgeon. Oh, wow. Um, And so and then it's just full of all this incredible, wacky stuff. Um, So that was a really special one to me. Um, there, but there's really been a lot. Um, I think that everyone that I went on, um, and I wasn't at all the shoots when we did that. Um, but you can hear me laughing in the background of all the ones (laughs) that I was, and that drives me crazy. I'm like, shut up, Julie. Um, (laughs) that's what that was. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. That's cool. That's that is really yeah. that that you guys get the opportunity to do that. And and then do you see when you like so you're exposed to a completely different side than than what a lot of, a lot of well even like your customers would would think about when you go to some of these like bigger distributors and stuff. Is it like I I know I've 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 seen some behind the scenes stuff from like Taman and things like that. And it's like mm-hmm. is it ever just like whoa this is a whole another level of of stuff or you, you just seen some kind of crazy things. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we've seen the full spectrum, you know. Um, But yeah, Toman was really incredible. Their level of like robotics that they have for order fulfillment and, you know, the way that they um, are so like data driven. That was really cool. Sweetwater, I think, would fall under the same boat of just being really impressive technology wise and um, staffing wise. Both of those have some similarities, you know, they're kind of out of the way. Toman is in this very small town in Germany and there's really nothing near it. No major cities within a few hours drive. Oh, that's interesting. And so that makes it kind of even more fascinating, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't just apply your American ideas to how things work in other places. You need to be open-minded and, go and see it and experience it for yourself um, to really get it. And so that's something that I just think is really cool. Um, Being there and meeting people and talking to people and seeing stores and seeing bands is um, a really great way to understand how our industry translates in in different areas. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty fascinating. A little jealous. That's kind of cool. Something that really blew my mind um, was just how um, amazing all of the music stores in Japan are. They're every single one is like paradise, just like this next level um, customer service. And, and like shoplifting is not a thing in Japan. They, people would just not shoplift. So being in a store where that's not a concern is, is kind of interesting where more, emphasis can be placed on like the function of the display as opposed to the security of it. Um, Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. I hope to get over there at some point. I really, I've heard that the the stores, you're not the first person who's told me the stores. You really should. Yeah. It's the best. I love Japan. I want to check it out and I want to eat ramen all day long. Yes. Do it. Oh man. That sounds so good. It's Yes, it's definitely lunchtime. Um, <laughs> so, let it, what is something we're getting down to? Kind of the last few minutes here, but I I just thought of sure. What is something that might be surprising to 
the the customers or the outsiders looking in about Earthquaker as a company? Hmm. Well, I think maybe they don't realize how labor intensive, um, you know, and how much care we take with all of our builds. Um, so really, you know, everything is done in house except the powder coating. That might be re- very surprising to them. They also might not realize we're as big of an organization as we are having so many employees. Um, they might think that's interesting. Um, I know like when bands come through, they get really excited to see the shop and I'm always a little flabbergasted by that. Like, why is this so awesome to you? It's just a drill, (laughs) but they are like, they're like, wow. Well, they want to see how the sausage is made, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think they, I think part of it is, and I mean, I can say this from, you know, my limited experience is like, when you have these things that you really love, you know, whether they're whatever part of your chain, like, you know, the guitars, the pedals or the amps, even like the cables. It's like, I I really want to see that. You know, I mm-hmm. you know, the first time I remember watching strings getting made. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Like, really, it's just metal wrapped around metal. But it's so like as a musician, it's like you have this sort of intimate relationship with your instrument. And the tools mm-hmm. you use to like make these sounds, and so mm-hmm. to see them like sort of being born is is a uh, is very interesting. And I think when you're as close to it as you are, maybe some of the the magic isn't there that it is for other people. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's the way I feel about it. Anyway, I don't know. I I love pedals, and I've seen them being made many times by many different people using different processes, and it it always fascinates me. It's like, oh, that's, yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, I don't know. It was kind of a ramble. <laughs> but um, yeah, so this is this is the point in the show that I kind of like to have people, you know, if you have anything that's on your mind, whether it's uh, something you want to talk about as a company, something you want to say personally, like if there was a billboard where you could show everyone in the world something, uh, you know, what would it say? <laughs> oh man. I think um I would love for everybody to just be more polite and respectful to each other. I just think in especially in the world of like online pedal reviews and things like that, sometimes people feel like they should just say whatever they think. Um and I think that they should think about what they say and be polite and respectful. You know, like if someone gets up there and does a pedal demo, don't tell them they're garbage. Like taste is subjective. You know, you may not like their playing style. You may not like that pedal, but that doesn't mean that person is a bad person or a bad musician. You just don't like it. So I would ask people to be more polite to each other. I like that. And think about each other's feelings a little bit more. I like that. And I agree. There's mm-hmm. a there's a lot of things that get said on the internet. One thing I've tried to say before, kind of piggybacking off of that, is if you wouldn't say that to the person standing in front of them, then maybe you just shouldn't say it. Yeah. Because Yeah, it, it yeah. sort of astounds me at how nasty people can get and it's like if you hate this don't torture yourself don't watch this just keep going <laughs> yes scroll harder there's other things that you might like yes scroll harder so say like keep scrolling it'll be fine yeah yeah nice nice i like, <laughs> I like that so a lot of people use that as an opportunity for a company plug which is fine uh but i i've the real goal with that question is always to like mm-hmm. Is there what's on your mind? You know what's on. Your yeah. Mind? Okay. I'll do. A, I'll do a company plug for okay. you. Okay. Go for it. Earth, Earthquaker devices. There's no reason not to try them. I like that. There is no Thank reason you. not to try them. Yeah, there isn't. I have. I have some, and I can tell you, no <laughs> reason not to try them. That's right. Good times. All right. Last <laughs> question, and this is the big one. Oh no. Yeah, this is the one that people get really worried about. And this could, as I've said before, make or break the company. So are, are, you're sitting down, right? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. What kind of pizza do you like? 
Um, I'm not that picky. I just don't like green peppers. That's it. But I would, yeah. Um, like pizza is basically a desperation food for me. Like there's no other option. It's only pizza. Um, so I wouldn't like be like, let's get pizza for no other reason. But, um, I do like, I like all kinds of pizza, mushroom pizza, I really like some green olives on a pizza, like a white pizza. Um, you know, if somebody has got some specialty pizza, I'll try that. I'm not picky, but I only just a few years ago realized that I just don't like green peppers. I ate them forever and was just kind of like, blah. And then I was like, <laughs> you know what? I don't have to eat these. I'm an adult. I don't I'm like them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's interesting. You said that pizza is a desperation food. So is, are you, that's almost as close to like anything as I'm like, you wouldn't seek pizza out. Is that what? That no, is? no, I've never been like, I'm hungry for pizza. I've never had that feeling. Oh, so that's and interesting. Usually when I eat pizza, I'm like, oh, afterwards, like, oh, this is why I don't like pizza. I feel like terrible. I have to confess something. I, uh, mm -hmm. I ate way more than my share of pizza at the bowling party last year. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> I was like, I'm starving. Then they were like, you've already had six pieces. I don't care. I need more. It's just sitting there. No one's eating it. Yeah. So I'm sorry. But I hope you'll let me come um, back this year. Oh, you're welcome to come back. So you're welcome glad. to come back. We actually are not welcome back at that bowling alley. So I've secured a new bowling alley, which is also an old bowling alley. We've oh, done it there yes. before. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what we did, but um, when I tried to reserve the date this year, they were pretty clear that it was not available for us. <laughs> wow. That I know. Jamie told me that too. And I was like, I didn't think it was that wild. I, I don't know. I didn't think so either. I don't know what we did. I left fairly I early. So I was like, maybe somebody punched somebody after I left or something. I don't know. No, nothing like that happened. I, well, yeah, I'm glad you got an old one. Uh, I, I, the first year I was at Nam, we were in the fancy bowling alley and that was, yeah, that, we'll be, that was cool, but I like we'll be one. back at the fancy bowling alley this year. We're at the fancy one. Okay. Yeah. Well, that'll still be fun. That will be, it will be fun. Yeah. I'm very excited. Awesome. All right. Awesome. Well, I, th I guess that puts us right at the, the mark. So I guess I'll wrap this thing up. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. No problem. All right, everyone. For Julie, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. There it is. There's another one in the can. I keep saying that every time and I try to think of something new to say, but I just can't think of anything. So... In the can, it is. But thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing this with your buddies. Thank you for being involved in the community and all that good stuff. And another big thank you to Julie for taking the time to come on because I know she's got better things to do than to talk to me. And if you'd like a little more of the conversation, there is more. We talked for a little bit longer, and it is available over on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash tonemob where for just five bucks a month, you can get extra tone mobbery and extra episodes for your ears, just for your ears, only for the Patreon people. And on this one, we talk about Triscuits. So you know that it got real and it got, in you know, intense. We're talking Triscuits. It's a serious, it's a very serious thing. So yes, patreon.com slash tone mob, and you can get more tone mobbery. So it's there for you to listen to if you should choose. And we've got, I don't know, like 25 back episodes. Some of them are quite long. The one with Jamie from last week was like 45 minutes. So, you know, there's, there's, a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of nuggets over there. So go check that out if that's a thing that you would like. But thank you for just listening to the regular episode. You know, if nobody was tuning in, there would be absolutely no reason to do this. So thank you very much, and please share this with somebody that might enjoy it. All right, talk to you next time. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you, 
that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is ToneMob.com Stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.